Hello and welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode we have the pleasure of being joined by Dominic Wells, who is the founder and CEO of Onfolio Holdings, who are listed on the NASDAQ. We recently published our research piece on the company to our newsletter subscribers, which received a positive response with many follow-up questions. So Dominic kindly agreed to come onto the podcast to talk more about Onfolio and answer many of the questions we received. We will be publishing more write-ups in the future, mostly covering smaller public companies from around the world. The newsletter is free, so if this sounds like your cup of tea, just visit capitalemployed.com and add your email to the list. Okay, let's jump into this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Dominic. Hi Dom, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, hi John, thanks for having me, I'm looking forward to it. Can you provide a brief introduction to yourself and how did you get involved in online businesses? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Dom Wells, the founder of Onfolio. Um, I've been involved in online business since around August 2012. Basically started out with, I I was looking for a way to kind of build an income really without teaching English anymore. So a little bit more backstory. I was teaching English in Taiwan. I'd been there since 2008. And teaching English is is an okay gig in Taiwan, but I kind of just wanted to do something different, but I didn't want to leave Taiwan. The career prospects for someone who doesn't speak Mandarin, doesn't want to teach English are not really, um, there's not really a a lot of options. So I ended up just reading various books uh one of them was the four hour work week and that's essentially a blueprint for being able to quit your job and travel the world and build an online income and i wasn't necessarily trying to travel the world but i definitely realized that with the ability to build an online business i could live anywhere and so the fact that i was in taiwan didn't matter and so that's what i i did i just started trying to build a business in uh yeah it was august 2012 and then uh it took me a while i think it was probably mid 2014 so about two and a half years later two years later where i finally made something like a thousand dollars in in a single month but that for me was the sign that okay online businesses can can actually make money and if i can make a thousand maybe i can make five thousand and ten thousand and then yeah, that's essentially what what I did. I, I started to scale it up, um, and then I stopped building new businesses and I started buying businesses, uh, online ones still, because I realised that, well, first of all, the prices are pretty attractive, so it's quite a lucrative investment, but um, it's also just a quicker way because you don't have to start from scratch and figure out product market fit and wait six to 12 months to get any traction you can just buy a business that's already profitable and try and grow it but even if you can't grow it the income i think back then you could buy a business for about two times earnings so you know it was pretty good roi i actually had an audience because i blogged a little bit about what i was doing and some of my audience members said well we want to buy online businesses but we don't know how to run them um, so maybe you can run them for us and help us identify which ones are good acquisitions and 
we'll do a profit share type thing. And so that was really, so we've jumped forward quite a lot now. This was 2018, I think, but that was the, the inception of Onfolio. That was when I realized, yeah, I could, I could kind of do this professionally. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into online businesses and then how I started Onfolio basically. Well, why did you choose to become a, a public company instead of staying private? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I was thinking about this the other day and um, it's kind of a series of decisions or realizations which at the time each of them makes sense and they still make sense today. But when I try and explain to someone why we went public, it's, they, they don't have the benefit of me going from a to b to c to d i'm just, i'm already at z and and they might be i'm like well we went public because it made a lot of sense to which isn't a very good answer um but essentially it was if we pick up the story of onfolio from where i just left it off around 2020 i realized we didn't want to run online businesses for other people anymore we wanted to uh raise money and manage our own businesses and just buy, um, make acquisitions for ourselves. And so when I was thinking about the, uh, the, the kind of vehicle to do that with, it could have been a fund. It could have been a private holding company. I did think at some point we might go public, but I didn't originally think it made sense to go public early. Actually, I didn't even realize you could do that because these days people go public so late. But when I start, when I realized you could go public early, I started weighing up the, the different pros and cons. And some of the things that stood out to me were when you're public, you get massively increased visibility, which can be a negative at times. But in terms of deal flow, the ability to attract talented people to work for us, um, the ability to do partnerships with people, the the willingness of potential business sellers to to accept a seller note or favorable structure is a lot higher as a public company we we can't necessarily pay less than anybody else but if we say we'd like to pay a certain percentage of the payment over time which is fairly standard um since we've been public we've really had a lot less pushback about that than we did have when we were private Right now, it's not a good idea, but in the long term, I think you have the ability to use the stock symbol as currency. Um, there's also potential valuation arbitrage where if you're buying businesses at 2x or three times or four times EBITDA, but as a public company, maybe you're trading at 10 times, um, that's a benefit. And so it kind of came down to did we want to stay private grow big that way and then consider going public later or did we want to go public first as that would lead to faster growth um you know despite the initial costs and hassle and, and everything involved and i think i think really some people would prefer to stay private so there's no right or wrong answer but what we believed and still believe is that we'll be able to grow faster by going public sooner. Um, and so 
that's that's what I mean. It was kind of like this evolution where I thought, well, yeah, maybe it does actually make sense to do it to do it now. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we how we came to that decision. Online businesses, quite a broad term. What kind of businesses do you like to invest in? Are there any specific characteristics or business models that you seek? Yeah, so, I mean, online business is a broad term um, and we are fairly broad in in terms of business model or um, industry or niche. So the characteristics I would go for are increasingly we're really becoming a lot more focused on recurring revenue, which up until maybe a year or two ago, while it was a nice to have, we didn't think it was as important as other characteristics. Whereas now I think, you know, maybe we've had a bit of a an epiphany and realized what a lot of other people already knew and we're focusing a lot more on recurring revenue. So our most recent acquisition, the BWPS acquisition, was for two premium WordPress plugins with something like I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's in the nineties percent of uh, recurring revenue and single digit churn. So as much as we can find more businesses like that, that's definitely an important thing for us. The other thing is because we're not planning to flip businesses, we really want to hold them well forever, ideally. Um, So it has to be a business that we think, is this going to be around in 10 years? Is this going to be around in 15 years? And maybe not in the, the exact form that it's in, because the other thing about online business is it moves very quickly. For example, with buying uh, SEO Butler, which was one of our other recent acquisitions, that's an SEO agency. And we we feel confident that if the the products and services that this particular agency offers now are not around in three or four years, and you know, we think they will be, but even if they're not, the agency has the ability to pivot because SEO services or some form of search ranking services will always exist, even with, you know, the the recent AI breakthroughs. And so another strong characteristic that we look for is does this business have the ability to kind of reinvent itself or uh, even disrupt itself? And then Everything else is really, I guess we would say it's quite obvious, but maybe other people listening to this podcast, it's it's less obvious. So I'll spend the time, but essentially something like it's, it's a growing business. It has good margins and it's really hard for me to put a number on that because some businesses we buy have 80% profit margins, others have 20%, but for for their particular business type, they're good. It's something that is strongly digital. Um, we do have one or two e-commerce businesses, and we so with physical products, and we we're not ruling out future e-commerce acquisitions either. But digital is typically better because it has better margins. And then something where digital marketing is is one of the key levers that you would pull to to grow the business. Um, so that would be paid traffic, um, email marketing. Well, those are the those are the two main ones, really. We don't really want something that's too reliant on a single, 
a single platform. So, for example, an FBA business is not something we would acquire or a content site that's 99% traffic from Google. But if a business had Google traffic or if a business had an FBA element, then that's fine. So we just don't want something that's like just a single product in a very commoditized marketplace. You buy most of these online businesses on like a multiple of four. Does that include the sort of founder's salary? Because I've noticed a lot when I used to look at these businesses, it never used to include that salary. And then you think, well, if I buy this business, I then need to find like someone to manage it. Then I've got to put in their salary into the costs. And then suddenly it's not, you know, a P of four. It's a much higher multiple. The answer is kind of yes and no, because when we tell people we're making an acquisition of four, it's not kind of like a set in stone number. So it could be 3.7. And then after you've added in the founder's salary, it's 3.8. Or it could be four. And after you added in the founder's salary, it's 4.1. Or it could be uh, like in the case of uh, BCP Media, the Proofread Anywhere acquisition, that one was, I think, 3.7. I don't quote me on that, but it was around that. And that one actually already had the replacement costs of the founder actually of the CEO, not the founder, built into the the P&L, which is, is rare, as you just pointed out. So the, the reason it's yes and no is because no, the cost of the founder is, um, the cost of like hiring a CEO is not usually in the P&L. We're taking account, we're taking the CEO or potential CEO's salary into account when we're making an acquisition. So uh, recently, we passed on an acquisition where essentially the um, I think the business wasn't really making enough money to justify hiring a full-time CEO. And we basically, we ended up having to lowball the seller because we said, well, I think, I think the seller wanted a million. And we said, we're, you know, we're going to offer about 800k because we know we need to hire someone for 150k or or maybe even more to run it. And they were like, yeah, that's fair enough. And I think somebody else offered 950 because that person wanted to run it for themselves. And that that's fine. That's not, you know, someone listening to that might be concerned that we're going to miss out on a lot of deals because of that. But it's more an example of how we're taking into account the need to increase the expenses and then offering accordingly. And I've just remembered, so the, the additional question that the, the person on Twitter asked was actually a really good question as well. And they said, should investors be worried that businesses will not perform like after the founder leaves, you know, and we, we take it over. Um, and so I would say, yeah, that's a great thing to, <laughs> it's something that people should be, concerned about but it's not something that we have a concern about if that makes sense so they're right to highlight that because that's one of the big risks with with an online acquisition um and so if we can't confidently say we can take over this business and replace the founder with a new founder or new ceo and the business isn't we 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 can't confidently say the business is going to be fine um then we'll just we'll just pass on that acquisition um 
I think a lot of acquirers, maybe not serial acquirers like us, but people who have who are making their first acquisition or their second or third, they overestimate their ability to run a business uh, or they underestimate how important the founder was. And so, yeah, one of the biggest things we're looking at in our due diligence is are we confident that we can bring someone in to run this? I think it's natural to expect a little bit of a dip when new management takes over, but, you know, that's usually offset by by the long-term uh, the long-term goals and the manager uh, either growing the business or bringing it back up to speed very quickly um so yeah it is it is something people should be concerned about but it's not necessarily something that we're experiencing okay <clears throat> with bringing in a new manager would it be something you'd look to maybe do internally or do you have a big list of people you think would be great managers if you approached them or or do you go down the route of using a, a recruitment company yeah it kind of depends and this is something we've evolved a lot originally we did it internally and we partly because we were running smaller businesses and the the uh, the thesis was one manager can run five businesses or something like that and every manager or no manager thinks that there's a limit on how many they can run. And so if you ask them, how many can you run? They say, yeah, I can totally take on another one. But I think what we've learned is that that's really not the case. And as we're buying bigger businesses than we were a year ago or two years ago, we really want one business, one manager. And so now as we're going through our pipeline, we're... We have our internal list um, of people who have expressed interest in becoming a manager in the future. We go out to recruiters if we think that's necessary. We also, you know, there's there's places you can post jobs, LinkedIn and all the various job boards out there. So yeah, that, that that's something we'll do. We'll, we'll try and be proactive with it and hire someone before the acquisition is completed, so that we're not kind of you know, buying something and then realizing we can't find anyone to run it. Um, so it's a little bit of a balancing act because if you take too long, it's also hard for you to hire someone if the acquisition hasn't gone through yet. So um, it, it's kind of, you're doing them in tandem. But yeah, the, that, that's kind of how we go about it. And I think in the long term, this is another reason why I, I saw the benefits of us going public with the increased visibility and there's a little bit of prestige as well one of our 2023 plans is going to be building out more of a Rolodex and a a kind of network and almost like a subs bench of potential CEOs or CMOs who can step up when we, we have an acquisition in the works. And I think that will, that will make everything a lot easier as well. We had a few other questions as well that people um, tweeted to me regarding uh, future acquisitions how do you intend to fund any uh, ongoing acquisitions uh yeah i mean it depends on the cost of capital so a lot of people have asked us are, are you going to issue any any additional equity or you know dilute existing equity holders in order to fund additional acquisitions and to some extent my boilerplate answer is that we really only discuss financial stuff inside um our press releases and uh, SEC filings, but 
the non-boilerplate answer is we've always said from inception that after the IPO, we plan to pursue non-dilutive financing. So that could be our preferred shares, which are not convertible. Uh, they just the, the current Series A preferred shares come with a 12% dividend. Um, it could be bank debt. It could be non-bank debt. So, you know, there's there's many lenders out there. And again, it depends on the interest rates. We have a lot of conversations going on right now, which are promising. So while everybody's concerned about, you know, how high interest rates are going to be within within 2023, we haven't seen any signs that they're going to be uh, rates that don't make sense for us. You know, in terms of issuing additional stock, that's that's not on our horizon. But who knows, you know, in, in five, ten years from now, if we're trading at a premium, um, that might be the thing that we discuss with with management and with the board and um and you know, that might make more sense. But right now I think cash is what makes the most sense. So it will either be retained earnings or or yeah, non dilutive financing. Um and there's also um seller financing and so on as well on on that end i have one more question that come up as well um i think in your last quarterly uh update uh your running costs were is it just over one million if i remember uh, correctly i think the question was um, yeah, around there, yeah. yeah can we expect that to be the sort of ongoing kind of running costs going forward or was that just a, a lot of one-off expensive payments within that period yeah, I think probably the ten uh, the ten Q could have been a little bit clearer here, but um, it's kind of what the uh, <laughs> the lawyers and everyone signs yeah. off on. Essentially, um, a, a lot of the because if you think we went public right at the end of August, um, and so a lot of costs in Q three were one off IPO costs, and there was also a lot of acquisition costs. Um, so. And, and there'll be a few of them in Q4 as well. But we, you know, we closed on those three acquisitions um, right at the start of October. So a lot of the costs of those acquisitions, which would be um, the audit fees and the uh, due diligence fees and things like that, they were in the Q uh, the Q3 uh, expenses as well. And so. In, in Q4 and then you know Q1 and so on, a lot of those costs are not going to be there anymore. Um, and I think actually, if if people read the S1, we've estimated what our IPO expenses are going to be. If you kind of take that estimation from the from the S1, and then you look at the Q3 filings and the acquisitions we announced in Q4, you can kind of piece together roughly. Uh, you know, what our ongoing costs should be. And in terms of deal flow at the moment, um, are you having some, a lot of ideas coming your way? Is there always plenty of um, ideas that you have to look for every month? Yeah, I mean, the challenge isn't, isn't deal flow right now. <laughs> you know, the challenge is just making sure we have the funds for all of them. Our, our pipeline is always dynamic because a business comes on the market, you look at it, maybe there's another buyer, maybe you don't have the funds ready yet. And, or maybe the seller changes their mind. So there's always businesses coming in and out of the pipeline. But yeah, we we have a lot of uh, a lot of things in the works in in various different stages. 
there's only so many things I can say before they've been announced, but people can expect our acquisition activity to, you know, kind of continue as planned in, in Q1 and, and beyond. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys can achieve this year. We're coming up to time now. Is there anything I might have missed uh, out that you'd like to talk about at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk about it all day. <laughs> I, I guess if the yeah. question is, is there, if any pers- potential investors listening to this, and hopefully it's a mixture of existing shareholders and potential investors, I think the information they would want to know is um, a little bit more about our operations, like how do we take down these acquisitions? How do we make sure that they they continue as they should? And we've touched upon that with um, CEOs running each one. I think they would also want to know is our existing cash balance, so you know what's left of our IPO funds, is that enough to get us to to break even, and, or even better, to get us to profitable? Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure how how much I can share there, but um, yeah, we're confident it will. And then, what's the plan beyond that? Because nobody wants to in, invest in a company that's just going to get break even. So um, then it's well, we'll we'll have additional funds in place to to continue acquisitions. And so the question there would be, well, how much are you going to dilute us? And so the answer is, well, um, as as little as possible, hopefully not at all. I guess the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is there are 6 million warrants outstanding and each warrant has a $5 exercise price. And so, you know, right now we're trading at uh, well, I haven't actually looked because I think the markets opened about 30 minutes ago, but we were trading about 150. And so the idea of warrants being exercised anytime soon might seem a ways off to, to anyone listening and, and fair enough. But if the share price does get to $5.50 or $6 or you know trading above that exercise price, you are going to see warrants getting exercised and it's not all going to happen at once. But that's $30 million that's going to come our way to continue acquisitions with. And, you know, then you can start thinking about the multiples that we can, we can pay for businesses with that $30 million and, you know, do some maths with the 12 million or so shares that would be outstanding and come to a conclusion about what the share price might be. I, I think, you know, that is something that a lot of people maybe overlook when they think about sources of additional funds as well. So. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would mention that. Okay, that's a good point. Thanks for your time, Don. And um, where can listeners go to find out more information about Onfolio? Well, onfolio.com, and we also have the investors.onfolio.com, which you know has all the SEC stuff. Um, I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn, and I'm more active on Twitter. Uh, um, Dom Wells on Folio is my my Twitter handle. So yeah, either of those places are a good place to kind of interact with me, um, and then um, just signing up to the the email list on on the corporate website is a good place to you know step step to date from a corporate point of view. Okay, great stuff. Okay, Dom, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.